of all the shows to cancel, you had to pick like the one of three that were actually good. Not just good. Potentially good. Excellent. I think it was pretty excellent. Yeah, and I feel like the third season really set up for making it even like more amazing. Right. I mean, moving to Vegas, you know, Mark Marin just just chewing the scenery. I damn it. <laughs> it's the best adaptation of Castlevania I've ever seen. <laughs> Bar none. Bar none. So in that theoretical universe, who is Simon? Is it Zara? Whoever he says. All right. All right. That's fair. That's fair. I actually didn't play a lot of Castlevania as a lad. I was more of a Metroid. That's because you're not fun. No, I just like Metroid better. You can play both. No. Mm-mm. You cannot. It's one or the other. <laughs> I didn't realize there was so much of a Cold War. <laughs> it's not cold. It's red hot. Like the lasers. Well, if you have shoots. Pew, pew, pew. unless it's the ice laser, because then it would be very cold, I guess. Yeah, I think we can. That's that's probably that's probably good for the Nintendo conversation for. <laughs> I don't know, man. I got a lot of feelings. Oh, hello, alleged human, and welcome to the Chaos Lever podcast. My name is Ned, and I'm definitely not a robot. I come from a land down under where women glow and men compute pie to a thousand places. If only Kyrie would show up with a laser and show me the path I must travel with my human feet. With me is Chris, who is also here. Hi, Chris. I am here. So in the, in the pantheon of misunderstood lyrics, I think those two songs rank pretty highly. I really thought it was give me a laser to show me the path I must travel and not Kyrie a laser, which when you look at it, one of those makes a lot more sense than the other. It's Kyrie Eleison. It's something in a different language. None of that makes sense to me. <laughs> Shouldn't it just be give me a laser? Because lasers are good at pointing. They point things. It's true. And if they're if they're good enough lasers, then they can do more than just point. They could cut through things, I suppose. Hmm? Yeah. Like your bullshit. Oh, nice. wow. I walked right into Nailed that. It. Look at you being clever on a Monday. <laughs> oh, it's always nice when the mescaline hits at just the right time. <laughs> you got to maintain a certain level. Oh, I'm so glad we talked about that yesterday because, you know, you, you were you were in a, a ditch. You were in a gulch. You were downtrodden. And now look at you. Shining example. I am a legend in my own mind. Yes, aren't we all? We're all the Not main character of our own little movie. Not you. No. No. <laughs> that would be Kyrie. Anyway, let's talk about some tech garbage, shall we? Do it. Do it. Whew, I just flew back from HashiConf, and boy, are my tacos tired. Huh? Wait, what? <laughs> well you know how uh maybe you don't know you don't watch any of my youtube stuff you don't care it's fine no i just mock the funny faces you make for for impact and then move on 
Ah, well, excellent. So you may not know that uh, my Terraform videos have an ongoing theme regarding tacos. It was kind of an accident more... at first. Okay, I was going to say, is it more in-depth than just tacos are delicious and more people should eat them? I mean, that is definitely a central premise that I like to explore. But it has more to do with the fact that I was trying to come up with a good way of explaining the difference between declarative and imperative code. And my example was, how would you build a taco with each one? Because people like food. And so, you know, I thought it would be I declare relevant. that I like tacos. Yeah, it went something am along I, those lines. And that doing kind it of, right? it snowballed into a whole thing. Um, now I have like a taco shirt and people know me for taco things. And I brought a bunch of tiny little 3D printed tacos with Terraform in them to HashiConf. And I gave right. them all away. So these are all true things that happened. I believe you. Yeah. Well, anyway, let's talk about HashiConf and not tacos. So if we must, we must. You told me to do this because you're lazy <laughs> and you didn't want to write. Mm -hmm. No. Mm -hmm. uh -huh. It's timely. Yeah, I'm helping. <laughs> you're helping me do more. It's great. Oh, anyway. So for those who are not aware, HashiConf, as the name strongly implies, is the annual conference held by HashiCorp creator of products like Terraform and a bunch of other things you might not have heard of. There used to be an Hashi, a HashiConf EU and a HashiConf Global, but with the pandemic and drop in overall conference attendance for tech events, they've shortened the EU event to a single day and renamed HashiConf Global just HashiConf, which they didn't tell me until I'd already made one video about it. So that was fun. Now, the global is implied, I suppose. Full transparency, uh, I am a HashiCorp ambassador, and uh, they've also been an occasional sponsor of my content, so I might be a little bit biased, but I will do my best to stay objective. You can call me when I, call me on it when I'm not. Or don't. You're not. Damn it. So soon. Usually the recap of any given conference is a list of announcements. So why don't we start there? One thing I've noticed over the years at tech conferences, and I'm sure, Chris, you've noticed something kind of similar, is that lately they rarely have the bombastic announcements that they used to. You know, the, so the and one more thing kind of situation. I think in part that's because of the 24-hour news cycle that demands constant drips of products and features to appease the content beast. But it's also a symptom of open source software and the concept of private previews. So by private preview, you mean when companies use their customers to do quality assurance? Oh, yeah. Yeah. When they, when they ask you to, to do a private preview, they're asking you to be an alpha tester. Uh -huh. Here's this thing that's broken. Tell us how it's broken. Fix this, fix this thing for us so we can sell it back to you for profit. You would think if you were participating in a private preview, then you would get some sort of discounted access to the product for like the next two years or something. <laughs> that's adorable. Isn't it though? Anyhow, so 
open source, and here I am using the term to describe software whose code is freely available. Let's not get into a fight about it. Open source software doesn't really have much in the way to hide because the software is ostensibly being developed in the open. Uh, you can just look through the publicly publicly committed branches, the commit messages. You can look at the pre-release notes. You can see what's coming. Uh, if a maintainer wants to keep something secret, it's kind of hard to do so. Right. And just putting your notes in pig Latin is not enough. Mm. No, it's not a great encryption scheme. I've tried it. <laughs> in addition, as we kind of alluded to, all the major cloud providers want to get feedback on their products as early as possible. So they have private previews available for new services and features. Even if you're not in the private preview, you can still find out about them. So you kind of have a pretty good idea of what's coming down the pike for any given service within a public cloud. So that's um, that's my roundabout way of saying that there weren't like a ton of surprises at the keynotes. Uh, but if you haven't been paying close attention, I can summarize them for you. You haven't been paying attention. I know you have paying attention to what exactly. We'll start with HashiCorp Vault. That product is all about the management of secrets, controlling their lifecycle and their contents. One of the big challenges companies face when adopting Vault or really any other secrets management platform is finding all the existing secrets application developers have squirreled away in their various code bases and config files. Spoiler, it's a lot. And they're everywhere. Yeah. Yep. And they don't rotate them either. No, they're often in plain text, which is super secure. And since they get reused, rotating one means that you're going to break a bunch of stuff. So you don't. Yay! Well, earlier this year, HashiCorp acquired a company called Blue Bracket that is focused on the secret discovery challenge. The software from Blue Bracket has now been rebranded Vault Radar because it finds things. And it's now available as an early access product in their HCP Vault platform, which is their hosted Vault solution. So you can sign up for HCP Vault and then get Vault Radar up and running and discover all the places that your secrets might be, which is everywhere all the time. I don't think that I like the name. <laughs> you don't like Vault Radar? Mm. No. No, nope. right. it decided I don't like the name. Compass? I would have gone with Sonar. Ooh, I kind of like that. Yeah, because it's kind of like it's not in the cloud. It's like under underwater. It's hidden. I like. Oh, I do like that better. Mm, I'm going to write them a strongly worded letter. Dear sir and or madam. <laughs> Despite spending thousands and possibly millions of dollars on marketing, I would like you to change the name of your product. <laughs> Consider this a private preview. <laughs> Yep. Uh, another challenge with secrets management is the housing of secrets in lots of places, especially if you're living in a multi-cloud world. You might have secrets stored in GitHub Actions, Azure Key Vault, AWS Secrets Manager, etc. Now, in an ideal world, not this one, 
you would be able to centralize those secrets under Vault and update all your applications to go talk to Vault to get the current secret. But in the real world, asking 100 plus application owners to update their code for your pet Vault project is, let's say, pretty unlikely. HashiCorp is aware of this. They have heard the pushback, and so they've introduced what they're calling Vault Sync, which basically allows you to centrally manage your secret values and then push them out to destinations where the applications are expecting to find them. So if your apps are using like Key Vault and Secrets Manager, the secret will still live there. It's just Vault will have permissions to synchronize it to a new value uh, whenever you need it to. And then your application owners don't have to do anything. Insert tired joke about lazy developers here. I may have forgotten to write a joke. Who's lazy now? All right. So this one, I think, is actually legitimately really cool and is probably something that people don't necessarily get the import of, especially if you're not a developer. Like, what's a secret? Where does it live? Why isn't it all in one place? And one of the biggest things is if you've already got an infrastructure and an application and a life cycle and all this other stuff in your pipeline, changing that stuff out to use Vault directly is a big freaking deal. Yeah. That has been definitely a central point of pushback as Vault's being rolled out at an organization especially if they already have like a pretty well thought out CI CD pipeline. I'm like we already have a place where we put our secrets. Why would we move them all to your new thing? And right. So and this... you can't just say, uh, because we hate you. <laughs> I mean, we do. We do. Apparently hate that's uncouth. <laughs> yeah. So this sort of bridges that gap where, yep. Now your secrets team or your security team can make sure that Secrets are being rotated on a regular basis and that they're meeting some level of complexity and then synchronize those values down to where the application expects to find them. Right. It's a single source of truth for secrets, just like we've already, I think, done a pretty good job in IT establishing a single source of truth for identity. Sometimes. But yeah, Okta I, I comes say to mind. I think. Right. Yeah. That idea like, Okta, it will push out your identity to all the places. And then right. those places will be where the applications actually go to look for, uh, you know, authentication and identity. So, yeah, I like it. Moving over to some other applications, we have Nomad, often known as the redheaded stepchild of the HashiCorp products. It got some long overdue attention. Uh, during the keynote, Armin Dodger through a little bit of shade on Kubernetes with an oblique reference to operational overhead. That's, that's those are the words he used. It was very funny. If you knew what he was talking about. Uh, and we know what he means. Kubernetes is famously complicated and basically overkill for most simple applications. So HashiCorp is trying to position Nomad as a simpler solution that just does the thing. Which by all means, but which by all reports of those who use Nomad say it certainly does. You need a workload scheduled, it schedules the workload and makes sure that the workload is running. And that's it. It's really, that's all you need. And like, 
a lot of cases. Mm-hmm. But Chris, I need so many operators. I need all the operators. <sighs> so they've worked to tighten up integration with other HashiCorp products like Console and Vault and introduce some modes that work better with Edge Compute. Uh, that's right, suckers. <laughs> we're back on my Edge bullshit from last week. You thought we were done. Uh, Edge was referenced directly in the keynote. It was also talked about during one of the breakout sessions and during a private product feedback session, too. Nomad weighs in at a huge, just kidding, uh, 44 megabytes. That is the size of oh. the binary. That's it. It runs as a single process on both the client and the server. So you could say it's like a little bit less weighty than Kubernetes. Like a little, little tiny bit. <laughs> One of the interesting modes that they introduced was the uh, the ability for Nomad to understand that sometimes clients aren't going to check back in for 24 to 48 or even a week. So it won't reschedule a job if there's a setting in there that says, you might not hear back from this thing for 48 hours because it's on an oil rig or something. And so internet right. connectivity is pretty spotty. So they are definitely starting to embrace edge applications and try to make Nomad the, the client uh, of choice for those systems. Unfortunately, the real challenge is building an ecosystem of integrators, influencers, <clears throat> and tutorials and examples all around Nomad and how you would do these different things, which is something that Kubernetes has going for it today, is just the sheer momentum and ubiquity of Kubernetes tutorials. That is true, but there was a time when Lotus123 was the king of all spreadsheets. You saw what happened there. Right, it's a similar, you know, it's the old, um... Nobody ever got fired for buying IBM joke, right? Right, until they did. Nobody ever got nobody ever got fired for buying Kubernetes, which I know, but still, you know what I mean. <laughs> uh, you might not buy Kubernetes, but you're sure going to pay for it. But sing. Yeah, I felt good about that. Um <laughs> as someone who's never entirely bought into Kubernetes and always felt like it was overkill for 99% of the use cases. Yeah. I'm pretty okay with something else walking in and replacing it. Not going to bother me at all. People who have built their whole careers and on it will probably be... A little bit. <laughs> they, they might feel the sting. The, uh, the other lesser-known product that got a bit of attention was Waypoint. Waypoint was introduced in 2020, and the initial push was for a simplified and opinionated developer workflow. But it would appear that developers were not particularly fond of HashiCorp's opinions. So now they've reworked Waypoint to be way less opinionated and snap into a platform, platform team's tool belt as a possible internal developer portal. So the new Waypoint is offered as a service on HashiCorp's cloud platform. It includes templates and add-ons and it lets platform teams define what they call a golden path for application development and deployment. Now, I'm not aware of any god emperors or Duncan's Idaho within the product, but uh, I'll keep my third eye open on that. You're welcome. I I don't have any hot takes about opinionated developer workflows, so I will just 
I will nod <laughs> knowingly towards the Dune reference, and we can move right along. Oh, okay, fine. All right, well, then lastly, we have Terraform. And you kind of knew we were going to end up here, right? Yeah. Um, there are two big additions to Terraform, testing and stacks. Integrating testing, integrated testing actually dropped in Terraform 1.6 the week before the conference. I don't know why they didn't just have 1.6 release during the conference. Weird timing, but okay. Uh, Within 1.6 is native support for writing tests in Terraform using HashiCorp configuration language. Uh, Generally speaking, any good coding language or platform has a way to verify the code that you just wrote does the thing it was like supposed to do. Uh, Python has PyTest, Go has the test module, and even PowerShell has Pester. Did you know it was called Pester? It's a good name. Yeah. Uh, Until now, Terraform has been relying on third-party tools like TerraTest and Kitchen Terraform to provide testing capabilities. This new testing framework is natively supported in the community version of Terraform, and the tests themselves, like I said, are written in HCL. I'm not going to get into all the detail and syntax behind it, but the short version is each test is defined as a run with a set of assertions. If one of the assertions fails, the test fails. To perform the test, Terraform spins up actual infrastructure and runs the tests. Coming soon, we'll be planning only runs that don't actually spin up infrastructure and also the ability to supply mock data instead of having it create actual resources. So this is sort of the version one of the testing framework. It's going to take longer to run tests because spinning up actual infrastructure takes time, which is why in the future they want to have the mock data available so you can say, this is what it's going to look like for inputs. So you don't have to wait for an EKS cluster to spin up for the next 25 minutes. Right. Testing was a big gap, and it was actually the number one ask on the issue board for the Terraform repository. So now it's here, and I guess people are happy. Well, probably not. People are never happy. In fact, they're the worst, and they ruin everything. Sometimes people are happy by accident. Yeah, but then immediately they're angry about being happy. It's a weird it's a weird situation. You're ruining the vibe. Or they're like, why am I not happier? <laughs> the other big announcement was Stacks. And this one was actually a surprise since it's not part of the Terraform community version at the moment. And it was hidden from the general public. Uh, Armin said that it is the biggest shift in Terraform workflows since the inception of the product. Big claim? He's not wrong. Um, I'll try to explain what stacks are without descending into the bowels of Terraform workflows, uh, especially for those who are not, you know, deep into uh, HCL and Terraform lingo. So I'm trying to put it this way. Uh, Stacks are meant to solve the problem of interrelated infrastructure deployments. So that could be, say, like you have an application deployment that's reliant on a database deployment, and that database deployment relies on a network deployment. So those are all interconnected in some way. Or you could have... Doesn't that normally describe all deployments? 
Most deployments assume that you have some pre-existing infrastructure. Ah, um, I see. Yeah. And when something happens with that underlying infrastructure, it may impact that deployment, or it may not. So describing the relationship between those two environments becomes important. You also have scenarios where you want to have a staging and a development and a testing and a production environment. And those might also have a relationship regarding how upgrades are meant to flow and the relationship between those different environments. In the world of Terraform, each deployment is represented by a configuration in Terraform and some state data. And if you're using Terraform Cloud, you would use the workspace as that unit of deployment. But there was no way for you to declaratively express the relationship between the deployments. What you would do is write some bash scripts, try to shove it into your CI CD pipeline or glue code together that would express what should just be something you can declaratively say this environment or this deployment interacts with this other deployment in this way. So when something happens here, I want you to update my configuration here. Couldn't do any of that. Now you can. <laughs> so, yay, yes, I see you nodding your head. Well done, sir. Uh, now you can define relationships as first-class citizens using a declarative approach with stacks. Assuming you're using Terraform Cloud or Terraform Enterprise, because for the moment, this may change. Stacks are only going to be part of the paid Terraform offerings and not the community edition. Wah, wah. Yeah, it is in private preview at the moment, so you have a chance to test it for HashiCorp. <laughs> um, my sense here is that HashiCorp feels that this is a killer feature for their paid platforms, and so they don't want to share it out on the, the free version just yet. We'll see if that changes. Uh, I had some assurances from folks inside that said that they are championing, uh, championing moving some aspects of Stacks out of the paid versions and into the community version. We'll just have to see how that takes shape. Right. Speaking of paid and licensing and all that jazz, I should note that everything announced at HashiConf is under the umbrella of the new BSL licensing that HashiCorp has adopted. Uh, for those who are open source purists, these features are not going to be available to you unless you break edge and touch filthy business source licensed software. Filthy. Um, I'm a little less principled, so I'll be playing with all of this stuff as soon as I can. Beyond the product announcements, uh, the event itself was great. I had a great time. Uh, the attendance was in the like 1,000 people range, which is honestly my kind of conference. I think, Chris, you feel the same. Yeah, we've talked about this. That's the, that's the right number. Yeah. Uh, mega conferences like the upcoming CubeCon and reInvent are distinctly impersonal and overwhelming. And in a weird way, isolating at the same time. You're just surrounded by people you don't know. <laughs> Hanging out with 50,000 of your closest friends to watch a keynote remotely from a location in the same city 
just doesn't sound like my idea of a good time. And of course, there's also the endless queuing for everything, which comes with any large gathering. So right. I I went to reInvent last year and was mostly miserable. I don't know if you've gone to anything big recently. I mean, even before COVID, this was my attitude. Um, I did, I have been to reInvent before, but it's been a while. And even back then, I was like, never again. Um, I much prefer... <laughs> the satellite events. Yeah. Reinvent reinvent has their little breakouts that are a smaller version of the same announcements in localized cities um, that covers most of the same material and anything they don't cover, you can watch online. So for me, at least I, I completely agree that going to a 50,000 person conference is not worth it. No. In my estimation, HashiComp felt small, personal, approachable. Um, all of the people there seemed very friendly. Uh, personally, I found I couldn't walk from one end of the expo hall to the other without getting pulled into at least three different conversations. And I ended up chatting with folks like HashiCorp's CEO. He was just standing there, hanging out. And I was like, hi, Dave. And we got into a conversation about his time at Microsoft, oddly enough. Um, but that's because a conversation with his security for uh, invading his personal space. No, that's the thing. Like, is that like this... why you called me from the police department? No, that was about the other thing, which we'll talk about oh, later. Right. I right. still, I still might need some money. Um, <laughs> yeah, but it's like the CEO, the CTO, the chief marketing officer, all of them were just hanging out in the expo hall. And so if you wanted to talk to like a big wig, it wasn't like you had to go through three sets of security and behind six closed doors. Like they were just there. Like, like they were almost normal people. I mean, they're not, they're weirdos. But right. But they do a good like job pretending. Yes. Just like the Terminator. <laughs> anyway, um, that was pretty much it about HashiConf. Unless you have other things you want me to talk about, Chris. Um, no, I think, I think you covered everything I expected you to cover. Um, and I intentionally didn't read anything up on this just to see what was like top of mind for you. One of the things I think that's interesting to see, and it's going to be interesting to see how it goes over time. And you kind of alluded to it is people know HashiCorp for one thing. Mostly. <laughs> yeah. Now I do believe that Vault is starting to make some inroads and it's at least got some name recognition. Right. Yeah. Um, what is your feeling, and what was the like the feeling of the room? I guess for the conversations, whether they were formal or otherwise, about how all the other things and all the other HashiCorp efforts are going. Like, are they making progress with people knowing what Nomad is? I, you know, I'm I'm there with a skewed demographic, <laughs> so the people that were there are self-selected HashiCorp folks, so they at least know the products, even if they don't intimately work with all of them. I say Nomad is still one of the ones that is not used that much. Uh, another product that I didn't even really talk about, but Boundary, that came out as the same time as Waypoint, that has actually made some significant inroads in a lot of organizations because it's on the security side. So folks who already know about Vault are more likely, and their security folks are probably likely to be interested in Boundary and that sort of remote access for humans that it provides. So 
yeah, that product's actually actually it has probably done better than Nomad if if we're looking at their product portfolio. Yeah, I don't know. Um, Terraform's still going to be the ten thousand pound gorilla in the room, and Vault is going to be you know a distant second, and everything else is going to be probably a result of people not liking Kubernetes. <laughs> I'm not kidding. I, like, I, the no, I believe you, you. I'm laughing with. The reason you use console and nomad is because like the overwrought network virtualization that comes with using Kubernetes is just not there with console and nomad. Like they're relatively lightweight. They do a lot of the same things, but they do it in a way that doesn't require like a PhD and like 70 hours of intensive training. You can just kind of use them. So I think that's, they need to get that messaging across. And one of the sessions that they had was they're developing sort of a uh, well-architected framework for HashiCorp stuff and also um, predefined models for deployment. And they're talking to existing customers about implementing those predefined models. So that could be a, a place for success where it's like, well, here's just the stack. Just deploy the stack as it is. And here's all the checkboxes and all the things you you'll need to do that. And suddenly you're running the hashy stack. Are we going to have to call it the hashy stack? I already did. It's too late. No going back. <laughs> yeah. If you're interested, there's a project called hashy cube spelled with a Q that is an open source project. One of the ambassadors put together that runs all the HashiCorp products inside of a uh, containers. So you can just tell it, I think it uses Docker Compose. You can just say, I want all of it. And it will spin up every community version of the project of uh, the products they have. It's a lot. So, yeah. That's also not a good name. You are so negative. Look, I didn't even look. I think I should be complimented. I didn't even bring up HashiCorp Vault Cloud once. So <laughs> fair enough. We also didn't talk about Vault Secrets, which, and moving on. Uh, next year's HashiConf is going to be in Boston, which um, I'm pretty psyched for because it means that I don't have to get on a plane and I don't have to deal with any time zone changes. So it's really all about me. And I also like Beantown to start with. Um, so if you're interested in HashiCorp stuff, definitely worth checking out. It'll be this around the same general time frame, but in Boston instead. Hey, thanks for listening or something. I guess you found it worthwhile enough if you made it all the way to the end. So congratulations to you, friend. You accomplished something today. Now you can go sit on a couch, have some chicken mole, and ponder your existence for the next 24 to 48 hours till Nomad checks back in with you. You've earned it. You can find more about the show by visiting our LinkedIn page. Just search chaoslever.com or go to our website, chaoslever.cow where you can find show notes, blog posts, and general tomfoolery. We'll be back next week to see what fresh hell is upon us. Ta-ta for now. I did ask somebody like how much it would cost to spin up a new top-level domain, and they said like fifty to sixty thousand dollars and a friend. <laughs> I was like, I don't have either of those. That's damn it. Don't steal my jokes. I'm the joke guy. <laughs> so sorry.